Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2018 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 26th and 27th of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. Stop motion animation has enjoyed a renaissance over the past two decades, despite the advancement of modern animation techniques. World-renowned experts in this field, Rachel Larson and Anthony Alworthy, share insights into how they bring stop-motion productions to life with filmmakers like Tim Burton, Wes Anderson and Harry Sinclair. Hello. Hi. Yeah, so Rachel and I um, thought we'd talk uh, about stop-motion and feature film animation. That's what we've um, been doing for our careers. And we will talk, I guess, about um, how we came into that industry, what it's like to work uh, as a stop-motion animator, what that kind of um, process is, and um, I guess have a bit of a discussion about stop-motion uh, in general and why it's still alive and kicking despite all the um, more modern alternatives that seem to be around. Yeah, uh, yeah and uh, if, we, if you guys have questions after the Q&A is sort of cut, um, you, you're welcome to come up and ask us individually if you'd like. Yeah, we're probably better when we're um, not on stage. Um, Stop-motion animators are, are usually quite shy people. <laughs> Terrible for public speaking, so... <laughs> it's funny because it, it's kind of... Um, the process of animating is with stop-motion is very analogous to acting, except in extreme um, slow motion and also in private. Uh, so it's, it's this weird thing where you kind of, um, you're a little bit of a show-off, but you're not much of a show-off as well. So anyway, to get started, I thought I would uh, share um, the point of view of stop motion as, uh, as given by Johnny Depp, who was, uh, he played the voice of Victor in the movie Corpse Bride, and when he was interviewed um, for the making of, um, he had this to say about stop motion. It has its own very, very special, very unique uh, look, movement, and uh, it's beautiful. And, and also, it's like a lot of great, great things, you know, it's a, it's a dying art. So obviously that's the bit that we take exception with. But, I mean, to be fair to um, Mr. Depp, it was um, at that time, uh, in about 2005, I think that was the outlook that most people in the industry had, you know, that it was pretty much on the way out, and it was at the time that Pixar were just churning out all these amazing CG films, and, uh, and a lot of um, stop-motion animators were desperately training to be um, computer animators. But anyway, that's not the, the way it's transpired, and it's actually gone through a real resurgence over the last 15 years. And we've been really lucky to have kind of ridden that wave a little bit. So should we discuss what it actually is? Yeah. I mean, I know that everybody probably knows what it is. Yeah, we'll try to break down kind of what we do, basically. So um, when you have live action, basically, um, let's say you have someone running or a horse running, uh, live action cameras just taking rapid photos. So even live action is just a succession of photos that you're seeing plastered in front of you. And when it's like a flipbook effect, when you see them back to back, it looks like this horse is running. Um, and animation, animators basically take those frames and we have to create the image that you're seeing. So we're not just like filming something and seeing action and someone does something and you're filming it. You, we're basically taking those frames and if we 2D animator, they're, they're mimicking what live action would do, but they're drawing out each pose. So when you flip book those poses, it looks like Mickey Mouse is running. And then CG is basically, it's creating these puppets in the computer. They create everything in the computer as if it's real, but it's, 
it's a virtual world, but it's it's the same idea. They're they're just it's a succession of imagery that you're seeing, like just played. And then when it's played like that, it looks like movement. And then that's like. 2D CG and then we're stop motion. So stop motion is basically it's it's a completely physical world that we're in. Um, we just shrink everything down, but we we have a camera that's connected to a computer and we have a puppet on a set. So what we do is we we go and we create the pose. So Mickey Mouse is running. So we would have a physical Mickey Mouse and we would we would be creating each of those frames um, with a physical puppet. So it, it's sort of like we do that and then. We take a picture, and then we do that. We move the Mickey Mouse like this. We take a picture, and then that. And <laughs> so it's it's an incredibly slow process, but it's it's very tactile. I think that's like part of what draws stop motion animators to this particular way of animating is a super um, tactile, and you're in this world. It's like the closest thing to an imaginary world existing that you can get. It's it's like those puppets are real. You can touch them. You can feel them. And when you move them right, they just feel like these real characters. And you can storytell in this way that just pulls you into these worlds that you can you feel like you can touch, you can smell. So that's that's what that's what we do basically. It's I guess. Um it's a combination of, of storytelling and, um, and acting and, and playing as well, I think, which makes it quite unique. And in terms of the frames that Rachel was talking about, somebody once said an interesting thing to me that, it, um, although obviously, you know, like we are shaping every frame that gets put on, on the screen, uh, what we're really doing is what you don't see between those frames. So it's the space between the frames, which is our craft, and that's the that's the difficult bit. It's also a very intuitive process, and it's like in this day and age where, uh, you know, the technology allows anybody with an iPad or whatever to, to play with stop motion with their Lego figurines and their bedrooms and things, and people are doing this all over the place. It's because I think it's a very obvious thing to do that, you know, like it's almost as intuitive as drawing or something like that because the technology just allows it to happen. And that's why I think it is the oldest version or the old, oldest method of, of animation, it, as old as cinema itself, really. The first stop-motion movies um, were made in the 1890s, you know, pretty much after the invention of the camera. And from there, it eventually became, I guess, the state-of-the-art kind of special effects method Method, you know, as people got better and better at it. And so by the 1930s, when people like Willis O'Brien were making these kinds of images and had worked out ways to combine stop motion with live action, which would have been a really extraordinary thing to see on the screen for those audiences. And well, it's still pretty extraordinary, isn't it? You know? So you can imagine what audiences must have felt when they saw that for the first time in the 1930s. You know, that's, it was incredible. And then Willis O'Brien's protege, Harryhausen, Ray Harryhausen, you know, went on to take it to even greater heights of finesse, you know, and, and these famous scenes, you know, that we all know were just state-of-the-art stuff. And, and that was for you know, 50 years really or more from the 1930s to the 80s, stop motion was the way to do special effects unless you had somebody in a, in a, in a suit. And the, uh, the other thing I would want to say is what they did then, basically it's, it's a little bit hard to understand, but what we do now is when we, we animate, we can see everything that we've animated with the technology now. So we can hit play and we can see our whole scene play out and we can say the last six frames and that totally informs what the next frame needs to be. We see it live. So we keep making adjustments it plays all the frames we've shot and then ends on our live frames. So if something tweaks, then we know how to correct it very quickly. And these guys did not have that. They were guessing. So that 
sequence that King Kong did, like it looks rudimentary now, but in the time they had no knowledge of what those frames were doing. They just had to sort of go for it, what they thought needed to happen and just shoot it and like do that. So it's really incredible. It looks, you know, it looks rudimentary now and now that what we've done, but it is super incredible. They were insanely talented, you know. It's just sort of developed as time's gone on with technology and everything. Yeah, and I guess like, like anything, technology just allows the art form to grow. I guess tracing the history of it, The Nightmare Before Christmas was a seminal moment because it was the first fully, well, it probably wasn't the first fully stop-motion feature, but it was the first one that really kind of had any impact on culture and it kind of marked a progression of it from being just a sort of a special effects technique to being an art form in its own right. And it was the the first in, uh, in a succession of films that have been made that way and of course now with the popularity of things like Wallace and Gromit, uh, you know, it, it's definitely an art form in its own right. So I guess that sort of leads us on to, we could discuss just briefly how um, we got into the into the profession yeah. and why. So I was, I was living in Portland, I was 28 and I graduated with a BFA in sculpture and all my sculpting work was basically very conceptual and very like I was making these little worlds but I had no context for stop motion I didn't realize it was something you could do. It was just like, on my own time, I was sort of making these little creatures and these little worlds. And I needed a job in Portland, and a friend was working at Leica, and he, he saw my work and he said, you should apply to Leica. They're making a film called Coraline, and I think your skill set would work there. And so I went home and Googled dot motion, and I was, I fell in love. Like, I was just like, this exists as a thing you can do. Like, I, I knew about it, but I just didn't realize it was a, a job option. I put together my portfolio and turned it in and just said, I have to do this. This is completely what I'm meant to do. And luckily enough, they were hiring people in the puppet department and I had enough skill set to make puppets. So I went in as a hand, I made hands for Coraline. There was a whole team of hand people because her hands were about that big. They were tiny and there was wire in the hands. That's how you move the, the fingers and they broke all the time. So they needed a team of people just making hands. So when I got into Coraline, I died and gone to heaven. It was like a world of miniatures, it was a fantasy world, it was like a building full of weirdos. So I built yeah, I just stayed in the puppet department for three months and I, I had a secret interest to animate, but I had no background in animation. I had no knowledge about it. And I just, I thought it was meant for other people. It was like these gods that were walking around, like these animator gods. And I was like, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> and something sort of clicked and I said, why don't I just try it? Like, who knows? And um, they have test units. Uh, in most of the big films you go to, they have test units. So the animator can go to a test unit and just rehearse. So they just play basically with her puppet and they make sure the puppet's working, they rehearse a scene and um, it's a way to do it just with a camera and a stage and that's it. Uh, so they, so I basically um, asked if I could just test and they said yes and Anthony actually set me up with my first puppet and just said, eh, just go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they drill into us like these puppets cost $80,000. Like every, every day they're like that those puppets are 80,000. So you're just like, you know, you handle them very carefully. And uh, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I didn't, I knew a bit how it worked, but not totally, but I just loved it. I did the first animation and it was Coraline clapping. <laughs> I thought it looked great and it did not, but um, I loved it. And I just, I just did it. Anytime there was a test, you know, open, I came in on the weekends, I just, kind of taught myself how to do it with the help of the animators who were around and 
I said, this is what I want to do. I want to story tell with these puppets. Um, and from there, I, I eventually got an assistant animation job on the end of Coraline. I did uh, some of the special effects um, towards the end of that project. And then I went to Robot Chicken. And I, uh, yeah, I was an assistant animator there. And then I moved up to be, become an animator. And that was a really great place to practice because, and, like, you don't get good at animating until it's just in your blood. Like, you have to just do it and do it and do it and do it, and um, it just takes so much time. So Robot Chicken was a really low-pressure, fun job. I just got to play. There's a, a playground. And after I um, became an animator in Robot Chicken, I moved to Paranorman, became an assistant again, because the level of animation at Leica is, like, here. Robot Chicken is, like, here. <laughs> so uh, when I went back to Paranorman, I was an assistant again. And so it's sort of like rewinding and saying, now learn this again on ones and learn it hyper, hyper smooth and realistic. By the end of Paranorman, I was an animator and then went back to LA and uh, became an animation director on Tumbleleaf. So that sort of, um, that job was, was a lot more about getting all the animators to be consistent. So the main character, Fig, you have 13 people animating Fig and he has to be Fig here, 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 right? So that job was more about the overseeing of the animation and making sure things just fit. Um, and then from there, I worked on Isle of Dogs with Anthony again, which was awesome because we were, we were good friends on Coraline and our paths just went, you know, he went back to New Zealand and we kind of just went like this. And then uh, we worked on Isle of Dogs together and it, we came back together, which was great because we love to juggle together too. So we got to get really good on Isle of Dogs <laughs> juggling. Um, and then, yeah, he, he was working on a pilot and um, said, if you're interested in this goes, I'd love to have you in New Zealand. And I said, absolutely. And so, yeah, that's what I'm working on now is his project. There's no time for juggling anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> on those feature films, the animators are quite frequently waiting. There's all these little processes that have to be gone through before you, you get put on set. And, and there's a lot of downtime. Juggling's good for that. My path into animation, I guess, was a bit slower. I didn't land on a big production like Coraline. Um, I had to work my way towards that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, yeah, but, but like Rachel, I came to stop motion quite late. A lot of people seem to, especially these days, uh, a lot of people that we work with have been doing it since they were kids and they've just been super, it's been their whole lives. I didn't really discover it until I was... Um, studying uh, design and illustration in Wellington and, and I saw uh, Wallace and Gromit in the wrong trousers and I just thought, oh, I'd like to have a go at that, you know. It just suddenly occurred to me that I could. And so uh, I made a little film and tried out a few different animation techniques and it was a terrible film, um, which has been buried. Um, <laughs> but on the strength of that, I was offered a job. It was just pure fluke, really, but there was a... Um, a short film being made here in Auckland um, by uh, Luke Nola and, and Cameron Chittick. Uh, and they um, offered me a job as an assistant on that. It was called Life on Ben. It uh, tells the story of the bacteria that live on the skin of a dirty adolescent. Uh, really funny. It, it never came to much, unfortunately, but it was really great writing <laughs> <Why>? and design. <laughs> yeah. 
people couldn't see the appeal. But um, it was a it was a great uh, production, and and there were some really talented people that had come from from all over to work on it. And uh, yeah, I did, I guess at that time I didn't really realise that it, how lucky I was and how infrequently those opportunities happen in New Zealand. Um, so yeah, for better or worse, I suddenly found myself on this path of of being a professional animator, uh, which I've found since is kind of quite a hard um, road to hoe. You certainly have to travel a lot and you have to chase it around. Uh, and so from New Zealand, I went off to the UK and I spent about five years working on uh, on kids' TV shows and, and a few commercials. And uh, this is just one of them. There were a lot. I, this was a good one, but they weren't all very good. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun, and like with Robot Chicken, it, it was, um, I guess, uh, a training ground. You know, the um, the pressure was put on us from the production to produce a lot of seconds every day. Uh, the quality was kind of second place to that, uh, and therefore, you know, you learn very quickly because you're just doing, doing a lot. Uh, and then, um, I think in about 2005, uh, Tim Burton announced that he was making uh, Corpse Bride in London. And um, there was just, everybody was dropping their jobs if they could. <laughs> and poor, the poor old people at Koala Brothers suddenly found themselves without any animators because we all just went to Corpse Bride. It was a huge opportunity for, for all of us. We all had to lift our game. Uh, the quality of the puppets and of the sets and of the animation, the lighting, everything was just at a whole new level that none of us had ever really encountered before. Um, I'm going to show a, a clip from it because it was, this is the first bit of animation that I'd uh, seen when I got onto the studio. I was just in awe of the, <clears throat> of the, the sets and, and everything. And then I saw some of this animation and it was like nothing I'd ever witnessed. I hadn't realised that animation didn't have to be kind of cartoony, bouncy, you know, and broad slapstick. It could be so subtle and well-observed and for a, an older audience too. This particular moment, I think, when Victor just shifts his weight on a seat in this scene, and it blew my mind. Yeah, so I guess the idea that stop motion could be a beautiful thing and not just a kind of kids' TV rough-and-ready thing was um, revolutionary to me. And uh, from that film, I went and worked on um, a little independent film in Australia, which kind of continued that idea that it could deal with adult content and themes and not just be for kids. And, yeah, I guess from there I went to Coraline with Rachel and, and then another Tim Burton film and then back to Laika and uh, <laughs> then I went and worked uh, on this pretty film. Did anybody see this? It's been probably the, my favourite film that I've worked on. And, and for me, it has brought home the idea that you don't need big budgets and, and expensive puppets and, and um, fancy technology to tell a really beautiful story. Uh, and this, the design and, and the animation direction of this film uh, fitted with its low budget and was still able to be really powerful. Uh, so, yeah, I finished up doing Kubo, then moved back to London and um, reconnected with Rachel and, and worked with Wes Anderson on Isle of Dogs, which was also an incredible experience. And that's been um, our careers to date. Mm. Should we, let's move on. That's boring, isn't it? Um, <laughs> let's talk about, um, about the, the practical processes of, of making a stop-motion feature film. 
Yeah, I think, um, so just a broad overview, like someone writes a script and then they turn the script into an animatic and then a production designer comes in, a character designer comes in and they, they create the world and the look, um, the look of the characters. So that's the storyboard versus the reality of what ends up on screen. Yeah, then they build, build the sets, build the puppets, and then once that's done, the animators are brought in and we make the film. Um, You're going faster than my slides here, Rachel. Oh, sorry. Oh, so this is a character design turned into Coraline. And that, uh, the, the thing next to her, that's inside of her body. So if you imagine whenever we move her, she has to stay put. So we have to be able to go like that and her finger will just stay right where we put it. So it's made of wires and ball and socket. Um, yeah, just like super highly machined armatures that go inside of these puppets. Um, Here's her hands. This is the department I was in forever. Um, <laughs> just making loads of these. Um, yeah, this is a puppet inside of a mold. So you have a two-part mold. Uh, the armature exists inside, then you cast it. So then um, the casting is basically creating the silicone skin around it so it looks like skin, has to move like skin. Um, so, yeah, I guess the... Um as Rachel was describing, you probably get the sense that even just within the job of a puppet maker, there are an enormous number of specialities, you know. So there are people that, like, even just working in stop motion is kind of a speciality. And then if you're going to be a puppet maker, and then if you're going to make hands, or if you're just going to do armatures or something like that, it's a very specialised skill that, um, unfortunately, is not very translatable to many other things. <laughs> yeah, different, you know, there's different methods of uh, doing facial animation. So if you can imagine, like, that's where it gets really small, you know, the mouth and the eyebrows, but that's everything is in the expression. So you can either do a mechanical head, which is Corpse Bride, that's where they did like a lot of push and technology. It's like they had little winders, which would like pull the mouth into a smile. They just did some incredible stuff with really subtle facial animation. And that, you know, if you have a little metal paddle, you can just push up the eyebrow and push it down. And it's very, it's very sort of, um, gives the animator a lot of power because we have the face there, we're making decisions, we're animating the face. Um, and the other method to do is uh, 3D printing. Um, so you, you design the facial expressions in the computer and then you print those out. So it's like you, have, you put on a face. And usually when that's the process, someone's already figured out what your, your face animation is. So they sort of pre-approve it and then you just get a box of faces and they go, you're going to put A1 in on frame 27. So you're like, okay, <laughs> if that's what you want. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it's, it's sort of like, there's lots of different ways to do a puppet, really. You can make it out of clay. You can, it just, it just, you need to be able to move it and it stays there. You know, you, you, you need to be able to manipulate the same frame by frame. Um, there's lots of different methods to get there. I think there's a point to be made about uh, what you're saying there with the, um, the animator's creative input and using these kind of technologies as opposed to um, having a facial animation that's pre-approved. Because uh, one of the problems with stop motion has always been that there's been a little bit too much reliance on the animator and production itself doesn't really have enough control and a lot of the time they just have to get the shot that they're given. There's often not time to go back and change things. They can't tweak anything. Uh, and so obviously for scheduling and planning and budgeting, that's not in, their, in the production's interest. 
Um, and so that, I think, is why studios like Leica have invested so heavily in, in using 3D printing technology to um, have the ability to plan the, the animation, they can tweak it and control it and pre-approve it, and then that part of the animation, when the, when the animator gets on set, like Rachel says, it's really just animating by numbers. Um, so we lose a little bit of creative control, but it's for the greater good of the, of the film, presumably. <laughs> Obviously, they need multiple versions of each character because they need to be in different, like, uh, on different sets at the same time. So the main characters will often have 20 or so versions with different costumes and, and yeah. Yeah, I think on Coraline there was like 50 plus stages. So at any given time, yeah, there could be 14 animators all animating Coraline. So there had to be enough for each stage. Yeah, and then those puppet makers are, um, are retained throughout the production to maintain those puppets. Mm. They have a sort of a puppet hospital and, and um, they, yeah, they have a sort of a triage system where they'll come in and, and patch up broken puppets. Yeah, and you could be mid-shot and something will break and you're just like dying because there's, someone has to come in and fix it without moving your thing out of its position because once it moves out of position, if you're in a really subtle moment like and someone comes in and <laughs> your puppet gets thrown back, you have to, like, it could take you hours to get it right back because if it moves, like, you lose it. Like, you totally lose the illusion. So everything is, like, this delicate tightrope, like, nothing, you know, you're building a house of cards and like, you're on the fifth, fifth floor, you know, and if you nick it, the whole thing could come down. And I think, just to say now, I guess that's what... For me, that's what I like about stop motion is this tension, this constant tension that you have to be so in the moment. And CG, you can go back and fix, you know, um, drawn animation. Someone else oftentimes does it in between. You just do a pose and a pose, and someone else draws these in. Um, but stop motion, it's a, a linear performance. So when you're on frame 100, you have so much invested in this scene that uh, you're on a tightrope and you're in between two buildings and you just, you have to get the next frame right because it could ruin everything you've just done for the week, you know? Um, and I like that, I like that tension and I don't think I would do well in CG. I think I would get bored. <laughs> I think I need that sort of like tactile tension in it. Um, and that I guess also, um that's what makes stop motion unique from other forms of animation and a little bit more like live action in lots of ways because it is a unique performance. When the animator goes through from start to end, you can never repeat it exactly. It's only ever going to happen once. The puppet construction's happening, obviously this um, production design and, and all the other aspects that go into normal filmmaking. Uh, but when applied to stop motion, then everything gets made kind of at a different scale. Uh, so this is one of the sets being constructed for Isle of Dogs. If you can think, like, the sets are such an important part of our job because we have to have access underneath them, uh, in them, um, and oftentimes we're sort of, like, squirreling into a window, you know, to get the scene right, uh, depending on where the camera is and where the puppet is. So that's a big part of the job, is just making sure we have access to the puppet. And there's, yeah, like, this scene, it was a really big set, and um, Norman was biking down the street so I had to get up on the set and just um, animate him sitting down and like this animator needing knee pads because he might be spending a week animating these characters like that um, so 
I guess, uh, yeah, those are all the aspects of the, of, the, um, of the production. We didn't mention lighting as well, I guess, that mm. a, um, which is much like what you'd expect in live action except kind of miniature and, uh, and more controlled. Everything has to be locked down, much like with the puppets and, and every aspect of the set, everything has to be kind of rigid and not moving sometimes for months at a time. Um, and if, a light, uh, if one of the lamps blows, you know, it needs to be replaced extremely carefully and, and the light matched exactly where it was. Yeah, and uh, yeah, basically the DP comes in and sets up the camera. They get focus on your puppet. Um, we get directed so we know what we're doing going in and, um, and then everyone leaves. So our job is totally insular. It's just we're curtained off and we're with the puppet on set. And it's, it's such a private thing. Um, no one really disturbs you. You just, you just focus until the... the the scene's complete, and then the director comes in and checks your work, and you pray to God they like it, and yeah. But before we even get on, on set, there's, a, there's kind of a, a lot of planning that has to go into it from the animator's point of view, and that normally starts with the animatic. We will get familiar with the shot. Well, actually, even before that, there's, there's a kind of process of scheduling where, um, you know, obviously the, the ADs and the schedulers will decide who's doing what. As Rachel mentioned, often there's like 50 units, there might be 30 animators moving around like chess pieces with these different puppets and things, which is a whole another side of the production which I don't want to know about. But um, when we come into it, we start with the animatic, and this is a little example of an animatic on Coraline. So we'll get familiar with the shot and then we'll go in and meet with the director and have a brief and we'll discuss and often act out physically what the action's going to be. Not in this case because I'm not really a high-flying trapeze artist, but uh, in, that, in those instances there's a lot of research to be done in terms of actually watching people doing those kinds of movements. Um, a lot of the time um, the animators will shoot a uh, lav, which is a live action video, just filming each other or themselves performing the action and then analysing that. But not copying it, not rotoscoping that kind of um, slavishly because then you'll get a, a quite a dead performance. You have to kind of adapt it and uh, embellish it and put some art into it. Then the planning goes on to... Um, <coughs> onto sort of a physical dope sheet or sometimes a digital dope sheet and you'll plan it out frame by frame. Then we'll need to liaise with the puppet department. Um, in the case of this scene where those, um, those uh, characters actually have to zip themselves out of a sort of a fat suit, um, there was a, months of kind of R&D that went into developing those puppets that only we ever get used once. So um, there was yeah, a lot of liaising with those people. And then there's the rigging department. Uh, the riggers are the people that create all the little um, mechanisms that hold the puppets up in the air or, or lock them to the set, and a lot of little ingenious ways of allowing really subtle movements. Um, so we have to kind of work with them to see what um, mechanisms they can come up with that will allow the action that we need. Uh, and in this case, it was quite elaborate because they needed to fly through space and do all their twists and turns, uh, and that gives you an idea of the kind of scale of the puppets in the set. I had to animate a lot of the scene sort of standing on a ladder, and it looks like this. I guess there's a whole part of the process which I uh, forgot to mention, which was the blocks and rehearsals and mm -hmm. things, so that before we can go in and, and animate it as accurately as we can, we, we will pass through it on 
uh, like fours, or, uh, which means animating the puppet maybe just once for every four frames or something like that. And that'll give the director a bit of an idea of how it's going to look and the, the DP an idea of make sure that the lighting and the camera moves are all working and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess we were going to run through about uh, how technology has moved the, um, the process along in, in recent years and how, I guess, it's actually managed to keep it viable despite what Johnny Depp thinks. Uh, or, you know, I guess, ironically, um, when everybody saw what technology was doing that, um, and assumed that old-fashioned techniques like stop-motion uh, would be um, left behind, it's technology that has actually um, allowed it to remain viable. So uh, this was kind of a, a watershed moment in stop-motion when we started shooting on digital SLR cameras, and so instead of films, so we were able to get instant kind of... Um, uh, footage and see what we were actually doing. Although there wasn't a live view from those cameras at first, and so this man setting up a, a little spy camera into the viewfinder of the camera so that we could see what was actually going on, and you'd get a very grainy image, but it was enough that we could actually see what we've shot, which made a huge difference to the quality of the animation. You know, yeah, the, the thing you need, to, you need to see is your live frame. So when you go in to work the puppet, you can see what you're doing in the, this current frame, and you need to be able to play everything up to your current. And that's what, um, when your current frame was through a spy cam, it like, it's super grainy and it's hard to see that like a hair just went out of place or like the fabric didn't do what you wanted. So you're, you're shooting with like foggy glasses, you know, and then once they had the live view into the camera, it crystal cleared everything, you know. So when your live feed looks just like your other frames, you can, you can get more detailed, you can get more accurate. And I think that's what technology has done, is just continue that magnifying glass into these like hyper-detail moments and get something exactly how you want it, and not just sort of guessing and hoping. Um, Dragon Frame has been a huge help in stop motion. These guys were um, brothers, one's a animator, filmmaker, and his brother's, I think, a software developer, and they, they combined their loves and passions and made the best software for stop motion, in my opinion, and they, I think they had a huge, huge um, uh, part in making stop motion what it is now and how seamlessly we can get what we want on screen. Just with different techniques, you kind of have to do it and know what it is, and it's probably boring to hear about, but... <laughs> Uh, the software developments have been, you know, part of what uh, makes stop motion a kind of a current, just a way to storytell, and we can do it uh, just as smooth as CG, you know, if, if that's what the, the director wants. Um, and the other yeah. thing, I guess, uh, that we've already talked about is how, um, you know, 3D printing has changed things, like going <laughs> in, instead of uh, using these mechanical faces. Like Coraline was, the, I guess, the first to go with these like 3D printed faces and she, she's happier with her face on there. And I think that she had enough faces to allow, because of the different mouths and brows, a combination of like 2,000 different expressions or something like that. And that's like Leica have just pushed it and pushed it to the point that now the characters have an infinite number of um, faces. And a lot of the time when they're planning uh, some facial animation, they will print out, paint, clean up some faces that are only going to be used for that one shot. 
and you know, for one frame of that one shot. Um, so they've gotten so specific with it. This is an example in this little scene of Kubo where um, the monkey kind of brushes some snow off his face. You'll see that those faces needed to be kind of um, pre-made weeks before we actually made the shot. And so all that animation has to be pre-planned in a way that it never had before. The thumb goes kind of pushing across the face like that, and the face all gets distorts, and then those faces are just thrown in the bin after we'd shot it. So it's kind of incredible. Yeah, so getting back to, I guess, the idea that, um, that it was a, a, uh, a dying art, and uh, Mars Attacks, uh, along with Jurassic Park, were kind of the sort of things that people were heralding as the disasters for stop motion, because it was... Uh, intended to be uh, shot in stop motion, and there was a team of 70 people that moved from England to California to build the puppets and, and do that, and eventually, because of budget uh, constraints, they, they shot it in CG. Stop motion has thrived, is that it's, it's thanks largely to a small number of directors that um, are nostalgic for that kind of old-fashioned look, and Tim Burton is one of them. So he, he's a director that just you know, loves that sort of old-timey look, and thanks to him and also the likes of Wes Anderson, uh, they, they've kept stop-motion alive just by kind of being truly invested in it as an art form in its own right. So, it's, yeah, he loves cotton wool. It just, like... <laughs> it was throughout um, Fantastic Mr Fox and then on Isle of Dogs, you know, we took it to an, another whole new level of refinement, but it's still just cotton wool with little bits of wire and lights behind it. And this is an example of how... Uh, cotton wool can be used to, yeah, to make a, a mushroom cloud. And all those clouds, every element of the film is made um, by hand and photographed in the, um, in the camera, even though it may be digitally enhanced. But he starts from that handmade point, which I think gives a really unique aesthetic. Yeah, it's just tactile. And that's the other way technology sort of advanced. We can add effects that are CG in stop motion films. So you can mix, you can blend those two pretty seamlessly. And, Often, you know, we've got to paint out the lines and faces and stuff, so we're always sort of connected with CG in some way, but it's just how much do directors lean on that and, or practical effects. So a lot of the time when we're shooting animation, you'll actually shoot multiple expo exposures for every, sh every frame with different lighting states that they can then composite the, the shots. So, yeah, we'll just move on to talk about a little bit what we're doing now and why, I guess, we're doing it the way we're doing it because we feel that stop motion is this unique process and, and creates these very unique uh, performances and also uh, gives the viewer a very sort of tactile um, experience when they watch the, the, um, the thing. Uh, we've chosen to make this preschool series using a system of, um, of animating clay on glass tables um, which is a way of trying to make stop motion efficient as well. So we don't have to build all those elaborate armatures and costumes and things like that. It's literally just a sheet of glass with the camera above it and the lights arranged around it. And the animators like Rachel and a couple of others that I managed to entice down here would just literally sculpt every frame. And the, the stories are written by Harry Sinclair and um, they're very sweet. And he's gotten back together with um, Don McGlashan, having not worked with him since front lawn days, and uh, they're having a great time coming up with these very sweet and sensitive little stories for um, preschoolers, also very humorous. And uh, yeah, this is um, Kerry and Lou. For me, it's one of my favorite projects I've worked on, hands down. I think when you go to different projects, it, 
even if you're on these big, big name projects, your experience isn't necessarily great. Um, I th for me, it's more about is the story there and is what's your experience with the puppets and the director. And uh, for me, this is like one of my top projects. It's adorable and really, really well written. And there's just a lot of creativity for the animator in this project. And I, it's just one of my favorites. So I'm excited for it to get out in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the clay characters are shot, as I say, just on glass and, and this shot as separate passes, every um, character is its own little element, and then the paper backgrounds and everything are all shot as separate elements, and then they're composited using After Effects to create the worlds. So we're really lucky. We've got some amazing voice talent, including Jermaine Clement and um, you know, Rima Tiwiata and uh, Liv Tennant that do, do these amazing uh, performances. And it, yeah, it's going really well. Um, so should we do a quick Q&A? Because... Any questions? It's hard. Yeah. Um, when I first started, I was really scared of it because I'm used to a puppet that just is fixed and it's that work is done. Um, but it's, I think it's a lot more fun. I, I was really scared of it, but then when I started doing it, it was just so much more fun because you, you get a bit squashed and squished. You can like kind of expand it. But I think for Anthony, it's probably a bit more anxiety because it's, you know, Kiri has to look similar between all the animators. And, you know, it's just a bit tricky sometimes. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It's always been part of the kind of concept of the show, though, that it doesn't really matter if the design drifts a little bit, you know, that it's, um, it's okay, you know. We try to keep it more or less on model in there, um, but, and we press out each puppet um, from a kind of silicon press mold, so at least for a new shot, they'll start kind of roughly in the same place. Uh, yeah, I think that is a tricky process. Um, that's uh, on this project. That's Harry's job. Uh, that you know he um, cast the voices and he directed um, the voice performances, and then he uh, chooses the the performances that he thinks work work best. But yeah, there's a lot of that um, happens. But in stop motion, yeah, all all that editing and everything is obviously before we start shooting. Mm. Hi. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the budget for Courgette was, but I would guess it was in the realms of about 15 to 20,000 euros, maybe less than that. 15, 20 million, I mean. I was like, <laughs> good Lord, <laughs> lots of favors on that film. <laughs> Probably even less than that. Some, something in the, in the realm of, of like sort of 10 million euros, perhaps. Um, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say. <laughs> well, our, um, our whole budget, I think, for the first 20 episodes was around about 2 million New Zealand. Um, and uh, by comparison, a Leica feature film would run to about 70 or 80 million US. Okay. Hi. Yeah, um, I'd 
grandson's favorite tool my dad names the fire. And I've seen it there ten times. It's an unbelievable story of the script. I'm wondering whether do you well, there's a script for live action interesting point. I think, I mean, if I was, like, producing it or something and I read a script and you entered, like, 70 different worlds, I'd be like, this is going to be really difficult. You know, I mean, you do sort of think, um, I would think, like, what's practical and what's uh, achievable. But, like, someone like Wes Anderson, he's just thinking about his story. So he, he doesn't care how many sets he needs to build or if a huge, really difficult set is a one-off, he's just thinking, I need to tell the story. But I, I don't really know um, what studios pick. And, you know, but for me, I would just think, like, what's, what budget can we get and what's realistic? Because if, you, if, you, if your world is bigger than what you can afford, it's gonna, your, your quality is just going to keep getting down and down. Um, so I think it's better to just work within whatever budget you can get and then your imagination can play in that. So like, when you have a How do you go about deciding how much, like, we do reference live action footage, but it very quickly becomes a, an intuitive process. You know, you have a sort of a, an understanding of how many frames it would take to move an arm from there to there. And obviously it depends what kind of energy, you know, you want to put into that action, you know, and you, you kind of uh, have a feeling for for the easings and the, you know, starting very small and getting bigger and finishing very small and bouncing back, it becomes intuitive. Yeah, I think it's almost like if you're, if you're a baseball player and you're trying to hit a ball, you're just constantly making these little tiny adjustments in your body until you're, you can just swing and hit it, swing and hit it. And for us, we're just toggling and just, we, you know, it just becomes in our blood how much time, um, how long does a jump take? It's like half a second. You know what I mean? Like we just know, um, we know time really well. We know the breakdown of movement super well, like one twenty-fourth of a second. You know, we know, I don't know. We just, it's just, that's the thing that becomes in your blood. And that's what, when you're learning how to animate, that's what you have to learn. It's like, how long do these things really take? How long does a really slow walk take? And it's not really broken down mathematically, but it's, it's like in our bodies. Like we just know this increment needs to be this this big and this increment needs to be this big to get the result we want if that helps um yes um once you start animating like after you've got the animatic um and the storyboard how often do you actually animate like what they try to avoid that obviously because yeah. you know it's they've invested so much into shooting it in the first place but it does happen quite frequently on those big budget films where the director will decide that a scene's just not working the way that they want it and it'll it'll just get cut out yeah <clears throat> Depends what project you're on. If you're if you're doing a pose and you're taking two pictures, you're animating on twos, you're going to get through that scene a lot quicker. So it's like it's more than double time you're going to get it done. But something like a project on Leica, you're going to always pretty much shoot on ones because you just your action's going to be smoother. Um, it's just more information on the screen. Um, it's an aesthetic choice, really, for the um, for the director usually. You know, like something like what we're doing with Kerry and Lou will always shoot on twos. You know, it doesn't need to be super refined like that. Yeah. Um, 
The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and Janda. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Screen Auckland and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover was provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Bear.